0: Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the 8th century poet Abu Nawas. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Worang people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. They are the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include discussions of historical and modern racism and queerphobia, discussions of sex, sexual relationships between adults and minors, and sexual assault. There will also be mentions of slavery some swearing in quotes, quite a bit of discussion of alcohol, mentions of imprisonment, execution and death by poisoning, and brief mentions of the death of a dog and of civil war. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out the rest of our content. Before we get into Abunas' life, let's talk a bit about our sources. Abuas lived in the 8th and 9th centuries in what is modern day Iran and Iraq. His work and anecdotes about his life come down to us in three main anthologies, all compiled a century or so after his death. There are also various mentions of him in other sources, including A Thousand and One Nights. Oh, really? Yes, really. <laughs> are there other real people in A Thousand and One Nights? Yeah. Abu lived during the Abbasid Caliphate, and the caliph is Harun al Rashid, and he's the caliph in A Thousand and One Nights, so he oh. lives in the time when that's set. Oh, okay, cool. Jafar will also be here. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's a real guy. (laughs) Anyway, all of that aside, (laughs) there's a couple of issues I wanted to flag with these sources that we use for Abu Nars' life. Firstly, there are issues of transmission. Hamza al-Isfahani, who compiled one of these anthologies of Abu Nars' work in the 10th century, himself acknowledges that the provenance of a lot of his information and the poems he includes already isn't clear. And this is an issue in pretty much everything we know about Abba Nawas. Secondly, none of these primary sources, as I'll call them, even though they're somewhat removed from Abba Nawas' life itself, none of them were available to me in English, and much of the secondary scholarship is also in Arabic which made it very difficult for me to chase up the origin of a lot of the information I read about Abenoas. So I'll tell you a lot of anecdotes about his life, but I can't tell you where they come from. So it more serves to paint a general picture of how he's understood as a person than be definitive facts of this is what he did. Until that one time that it was on the Queer as Fact bingo card, sorry, I don't speak X language. (laughs) I was like, we don't do that that much. And since it's been on the bingo card, I've been like, oh no, we do that every episode. (laughs) I do not speak Arabic. (laughs) I apologize for any Arabic I mangle in this episode. I'm doing my best. Before you continue. So what is this guy's name? Mm -hmm. Abu Abunas. A-B-U-N-U-W-A-S. Okay, so it's two names, Abu Nuwas. Abu No, N- you know, it's one name. Oh, is it a hyphen at all? Two words. Don't call him Abu. You can't call him Abu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get on to his name in a sec, but the third thing I wanted to comment about the sources and our information about him is that a lot of the information we have about his life is based on his poetry, But obviously, we can't actually know what parts of his poems are fictional and what parts actually reflect his personal experience.
1: Oh, I see. You're in my world now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's this problem.
1: (laughs) Like half the media episodes we do. Yeah. I'm specifically thinking about like James Baldwin here in terms of a recent example. But yeah, this has happened a few
0: times. At least we know what happened in James Baldwin's life to, you know, some degree. So let's get into Abunasa's life. Abu Nawaz was born in Aboz in the southwest of modern day Iran in the mid 700s. His full name was Abu Ali al Hasan ibn Hani al Hakmi. Abu Nawaz is actually a nickname but it's what he's generally called today. Noas is a word which refers to the curls which young men wore long in front of their ears at the time. I don't know what was particularly notable about Abba Noas's curls. I guess they were very, you know? They were particularly curly <laughs> and luscious. <laughs> luxuriant. Was it like a fashion thing? Yeah. Yeah, it was okay. a fashion thing.
1: Hang on. So, so they wore them in front of their ears, so it's kind of like like
0: sideburns, but curly. Yeah, I guess picture like what an Orthodox Jewish man might have. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like that kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mother was a Persian seamstress named Julaban. His father was a man named Hani ibn Abd al Awal. He is generally said to be a soldier from Damascus who served in the army of the Umayyad Caliphate, the former rulers of much of the Middle East and North Africa, who had recently been deposed by the Abbasid Caliphate. Okay, and that's the current caliphate? Yes, that's the current caliphate that's going to be present throughout this whole
1: story. So this city that he was born in? Yes. Like, is there a name for the nation that he's in currently? Or like the empire or whatever?
0: The Abbasid Empire, I guess. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. that includes like Iran, Iraq, the Arab Peninsula, a whole lot of North Africa. Mm-hmm. Just like that whole bit of the world. And so you said that his mother was Persian. Yes. Okay, so what is
1: Persia in this context?
0: So Persia is roughly analogous to modern-day Iran. Yeah. So within the Abbasid Caliphate, mm-hmm. or especially within the part of the world he's in, there are two main ethnic groups, which is Arabs and Persians. Okay. So for a bit of kind of historical background and context, prior to around the early 600s, this part of the world had been ruled by the Sassanid Empire, which was a Persian Empire. The rise of Islam, beginning in the early 600s, had coincided with a general transition from a rural society to a more centralized urban society and to a society ruled by Islamic rulers who are called caliphs. Once the caliphs came to rule this part of the world, various non-Arab groups found themselves under this rule and there's a lot of tension at this time, therefore, between Arabs and these other groups, especially Persians, mm-hmm. which is why I specify that Abu Nawas' mum was Persian, and that will come back to discussions about his identity. So, Abu Nawas' dad, Hani, died when Abu Nowas was very young, possibly before he was born, and he and his mum moved to the city of Basra in what is now southeastern Iraq, possibly for economic reasons. There, Abu Nowas studied the Quran, the Hadith, which is the sayings of Muhammad, Islamic law, and Arabic poetry. How did his Persian mum feel about this? Was she Muslim? I'm not sure. So quite a lot of Persians did convert to Islam, but I don't know specifically about Abu mum. Okay. He's Muslim. What religion did Persians have? Zoroastrianism. Oh, that's where Zoroastrianism comes <laughs> from. Yeah, that's where Zoroastrianism <laughs> comes from. Cool. And there's a bunch of other like pre-Islamic polytheistic religions that yeah. had previously and still at this time existed that we just don't know as much about. So, in Basra, Abu Nawas eventually came to the attention of a man named Waliba ibn al-Habab. Waliba was a Persian poet from the city of Kufa in central Iraq, and Abu Nawas returned to Kufa with Waliba to study as his apprentice.
1: The word apprentice in a poetry context is quite funny to me. <laughs>
0: protégé. Protégé like. might be better than apprentice. <laughs> yeah. But I
1: don't know, I kind of like the idea of using the word apprentice because it's like more acknowledging that, you know, this is work that they're doing. Yeah, it makes <laughs> him
0: sound like an artisan, you know? Yeah. I would say the poet is definitely more of a formalized job at this time than yeah. it is today. Yeah. yeah, okay.
1: Well, then apprentice probably works better.
0: Yeah. So Waliba's poetry drew on themes of Shubia, which is an anti-Arab pro-Persian literary movement. And we also see this influence in Abun As's work, as well as more generally in his work, we see uses of Persian vocabulary and mentions of Persian cultural practices. So this ties into a debate, which comes back to Abun As's father, Hani, about whether Abun as came from an entirely Persian background, whether both his parents were Persian, or whether he came from a mixed Persian and Arabic background and his dad was Arabic. And we don't necessarily know what his dad's background was. And we will just never know that? No facts about that? I mean, as I said, I don't have all the sources because Uh, I don't speak Arabic. So, if I did, I might be better positioned to read the different arguments and say, oh, no, it's actually clear that he was this guy or he was this guy, but I don't have that. And as we'll discuss in a minute, there's definitely some bias going on in that debate as well. But we'll get to that. So, on the flip side to this Persian influence in his work... At other points in his work, Abun also mocks the use of Persian vocabulary by other people and shows a strong affiliation with Southern Arabic tribes in particular, which was not politically prudent at the time, but with whom his father was possibly connected.
1: Hang on. So he uses persian language and rhetoric in some of his poetry yes and then criticizes the use of it in other people's poetry yes okay (laughs) i just wanted to confirm that that's where we were at
0: yeah if you try to reconstruct his life from his poems it's very contradictory and another factor in that is that at the time a poet depended on their patron whoever that might be to support them Mm -hmm. so they had to write poetry which aligned to some degree with what their patron thought
1: So, I don't know if you know in what order these poems were published.
0: No, and that's a problem with analysing his life through his work.
1: Yeah, Yeah. because it sounds like, from what you were saying before, that his mentor was writing pro-Persian poetry. Yeah. And so, you know, like, it would obviously make sense if he was initially writing pro-Persian poetry and, like, later on started writing pro-Southern Arabic poetry. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, obviously that's purely speculative if we don't know in what order these poems were
0: written. Yeah, yeah, we just don't know. And, like, people definitely do try to place his poems in order along various themes in his life to make a coherent picture. Mm -hmm. We'll get to this a bit when we talk about alcohol. He writes poems about wine, but he also writes poems about giving up wine and being very ascetic. And people try to say, oh, he had a very ascetic, pious youth, but then Mm -hmm. he drunk when he was older – or vice versa, he gave it up in adulthood. But, like, we just don't know. He writes contradictory poems. <laughs> maybe he alternated all the time. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he, he just d- gave up wine sometimes for, like, religious occasions. Just dry July. Yeah. He specifically says he didn't fast during Ramadan. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you're <laughs> alluding to.
1: We don't know anything except for the fact that that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, he certainly says that he would pretend to be sick during Ramadan because then he didn't have to fast. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> I truly admire the fact that, like, nothing about him has come down through history except for this one lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, as with all things, maybe he didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> So, as I've kind of said, we can't necessarily get a clear picture of what Abu Nawas' political leanings were in this Persian-Arabic conflict, but when we look at his work as a whole, it seems more that he was willing to draw on all the traditions and influences around him, even when they conflicted each other, rather than that he followed one political school of thought. So as well as Waliba, in his youth, he also studied under Halaf al-Amar, who was an expert in Bedouin poetry, which is seen as the cultural predecessor to the Arabic poetry of Abu Nasser's time. And he also studied under Abu Ubaida ibn al-Muthana, who's a Persian-Jewish scholar who taught him pre-Islamic history. Oh, cool. So we've got a whole lot of different influences that we see in his work. To come back to Oliva, Muhammad ibn Mukarram ibn Mansur, who wrote a biography of Abu Nawas around 500 years after his death, has Abu described describe himself as, quote, A brilliant poet, whom Waliba ibn al-Habab (laughs) fucks.
1: I fully was just in the, like, Arabic-Persian political conflict source and, like, had forgotten what this podcast
0: was. No, we're here for the gays. (laughs) So, to talk a bit about this relationship... Abba Nawas was probably in his teens at this time, and this relationship fits into a contemporary model of pederasty, where adult men would have sexual relationships, specifically playing the penetrative role in anal sex with adolescent boys. The general understanding at the time was that these adolescent boys were old enough to consent to sex, and Abba Noas is depicted in all the quotes from primary sources, which I had access to, at least, as consenting to this relationship with Thuleba, Obviously, we would see this relationship very differently in a modern context, and I think that's just a fact we have to live with as we talk about sexual relationships in this period and other periods where this kind of thing happened. So, these kind of pederastic relationships were discussed quite openly at the time. Essays were written, for example, comparing the relative sexual merits of boys and women for men. Why do they always do this? <laughs> <laughs> Waliba well, is also not the only man we have reference to Abanoss having this kind of relationship with in his youth, but he is the one about whom we know the most. Avanos would also go on to play the active role in these relationships as an adult, as well as writing about relationships with other men of his own age. Oh,
1: okay. okay. So this seems to have been an ongoing thing in his life and not something where the only sort of relationship with a man we have evidence of is him being the passive partner in a pederastic relationship.
0: Yeah, no, this is definitely an ongoing theme in Avanos' life, that he is attracted to men. Yeah. Isn't like... A middle zone in the life of an ancient Mediterranean man, where he's too old to be the younger partner in Pederasty, but too young to be the older partner. Look, you have hit on something that was a concern at the time. Oh, really? In that there was definitely a lot of discussion about the age at which a boy or a man became too old to be the younger partner in this kind of relationship. Yeah, okay. And specifically that was generally put as at the time when he grew a beard. And that's a whole genre, talking about that time when a boy grows a beard and what that means for his life and that kind of liminal place he's in and all that kind of stuff. That's so interesting, just because puberty happens to different people in, like, wildly different orders. Mm, yeah.
1: And you said that he did have relationships with peers in his age bracket.
0: Yeah. He specifically says in a poem that opens, Don't worry when people say, That is not allowed and that is not permitted. Obey your passion. Make love to boys in their youth, when their beards begin to sprout, and in ripe old age. Good oh. for him.
1: <laughs> I
0: hope he had a nice
1: time. I
0: just—he's
1: just like let older guys be bottoms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will die on this hill. <laughs> I guess, obviously, it's translated, but I I shouldn't (laughs) be surprised that it's eloquently
0: put. He (laughs) He is a poet. (laughs) He is a poet. (laughs) That is his whole deal. (laughs) (sighs) So, this open acknowledgement of pederasty, however, didn't mean that it was universally accepted. Scholar Everett Rosen describes it as being met with mild disapproval, but for a bit more context, Islam forbade male-male sex, And in addition, non-reproductive sex, with men or with women, was often seen at this time as being wasteful, and similar attitudes are directed towards non-sexual activities like drinking, partying, and so on, which was seen as taking time and energy away from religious or productive pursuits.
1: So is this... Potentially something that was like more associated with the like previous Sassanid. Yes.
0: Yeah. So it's definitely the case that both in Abenos' time or closer to his time and in the modern day, people write about this as being something that came due to Persian influence. Mm. And we see this actually, especially in a more modern context, in the late 19th and 20th centuries, some homophobic Arab scholars have specifically tried to distance themselves from Abhinav's homosexuality by saying that that part of his self was due to Persian influence and specifically that Waliba as a Persian corrupted him and caused him to go on and sleep with men. Just, like, slice him up like a pie. Now I don't like that part. It was Persian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's very much what's happening. So, like, in the late 19th and 20th centuries, there was a real revival of Arabic literature from this period Mm -hmm. and a lot of kind of Arabic nationalism focusing around this literature as the basis for constructing Arab identity. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a lot of the people doing that were very homophobic, and so they have to reckon with the fact that they think Abu is this great poet and this great ancestor but also slept with men and so they pick and choose what they like and dislike about his poetry
1: that's mm. interesting that it's like you know obviously we have a lot of instances of that kind of thing in all kinds of cultures yeah, yeah. but obviously in this case like it's, it's clear that it's so blatant that he is gay that they can't pretend he's not instead they just have to pretend that he was you know corrupted into being gay yeah
0: curtains yeah. made him gay some of them do pretend that he's not but i would say it's much more common to say like yes he is and how do we reckon with this mm. and mm. that's A very common way for them to reckon with this. And, like, in the early 20th century, they're quite open about the fact that they're struggling with this and having this conversation. So Taha Hussein, for example, who's writing in 1923, specifically argues that you can't take part of Avanoros, but not all of Avanoros. And he says, We did not create Avanoros and his companions, and we did not inspire their whimsy and obscenity, and we did not dispatch them to frivolity and the pursuit of pleasure, but we found them thus. Therefore, we found ourselves with two choices, to be ignorant of them or know them, and we chose the latter, as courage in the study of history is better than cowardice. So, he makes quite a compelling argument that you have to take the people in history as you find them in all the parts, those that you like and dislike. Yeah.
1: I think that, like, without context, that's, you know, like, quite an impassioned thing. But <laughs> in context, it's like, you know, I'm so brave for being homophobic and yet reading a gay writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's Taha Hussein as well, who, despite defending up us in this way, Goes on to sort of say, but we have to read him carefully. Your ordinary person off the street shouldn't necessarily just pick up this book of poetry because it might corrupt them. It's better to kind of study it in a more formal context as an educated person. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what we discussed last week. Yeah, I was about to say, this is
1: just the captive all over again. I (laughs) guess guess it it was also
0: in the 20s. Yeah, Yeah. this was just what was happening in the discourse of the 20s. (laughs) And this kind of way of dealing with Avanas's work continues all the way up to the end of the 20th century at least, and I wouldn't be that surprised if it still continues today. So in 1999, Bahraini writer Al-Khatib al-Adnani, who refers to what he calls sexual deviance as the biggest social defamation and epidemic, painted a picture of Waliba corrupting Abu Nuwas, who would then go on to corrupt other youths. And he specifically hones in on the fact that Waliba is Persian, saying, Persians had a big influence in the spread of sodomy and the love of boys in Arab countries, as the most famous sodomites in the Abbasid period were of Persian origins. Now, honestly, despite having kind of focused on this, I normally wouldn't bother to cite such blatant homophobia. But the reason that I quote Al-Adnani is because this kind of attitude does get picked up by other scholars who are not necessarily this homophobic but who pick it up quite thoughtlessly with relatively little acknowledgement of the context that it comes in. Mm. As in other scholars just kind of casually assume that his homosexuality is Persian culture or... Yeah, so for example, Philip Kennedy, who's a professor of Middle East and Islamic Studies at NYU wrote in 2005 that Waliba may have had what he calls erotic relations with Abenoas, and that, quote, whether or not this predisposed Abenoas to visit this behaviour upon others when he was older can only be mooted. So he gives this argument, while he doesn't straight out agree with it, he gives it a validity that I just don't think it deserves. To continue on the theme of Abenoas' sexuality, While in Basra, he had a relationship with an enslaved girl named Janan. Incidentally, Kennedy (laughs) says that, quote, it has even been suggested, with only the vaguest evidence, that Janan herself was a lesbian. I assume this is linked to a lesbophobic quote from Abanoas in which he comments that lesbian sex is fat rubbed up by fat and nothing more. Rub as one may, there is nothing to rise in response. Because that's the only reference I found connected with this comment that Janan was a lesbian. So it seems to be saying Janan was a lesbian and here's what Abba said had to say about that. But I never explicitly saw that laid out. All I can say about that is that it looks like he wasn't giving Janan what she deserved. No, and <laughs> Janan was not particularly impressed with him.
1: <laughs> and, you know, the, to the extent that he had any observation of lesbian sex it clearly wasn't very good it seems pretty clear that he's doing that you know male writer thing of just you know assuming this is what lesbian sex looks like yeah and basically
0: just saying i didn't read the full quote but what he's basically saying is how can you have sex if none of you has a penis yeah 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 Yeah, the old i literally can't imagine women's sexual pleasure situation (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah that's the one so according to one account Janan agreed to marry Abanoas on the condition that he stopped sleeping with boys. But Abanoas refused this condition and so the relationship ended. Good, get out of there, Janan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's several stories about, you know, ways in which Janan rejected him. But this particular story about how she asked him to stop sleeping with boys marks a general trend where Abanoas' interest in Janan is placed in conflict with his interest in men and boys. Kennedy notes, for example, that Abhanawas' friends were surprised by his relationship with Janan, and he suggests that this might have been because he, quote, already enjoyed a reputation as a homosexual. So obviously that led me to ask, could you enjoy a reputation as a homosexual at this time? I was just opening my (laughs) mouth to ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say that the answer is yes. Okay. So one of Abhanawas' contemporaries, Al-Jahiz, outlines his understanding of sexuality at the time. And he says that amongst both men and women, people fall into different categories of sexuality. Some prefer women, some prefer men, some prefer eunuchs, and others like all three categories equally. I love the fact that there's a third sexuality here for people who like eunuchs. Yeah, that's a whole kettle of fish we're not going to open in this episode. Can of worms, (laughs) is that what I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) say? There's definitely a lot to be said about eunuchs and gender at this time that we're just not going to say in this episode, because that's not what this episode is about. Yeah, reasonable. Maybe we will want to. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it does seem that there was an understanding that people could have sexual preferences for different genders at this time Mm -hmm. and that other was generally seen as being to put it in modern terms a bisexual man with a preference for men yeah janan is the only woman that i came across any real content about his relationship with by real content i mean kind of anecdotes and so forth rather than just poems he does write love poetry to women but generally we don't know much about these women or they're not even named in the poem and so we don't even know if this was a specific woman or if he was just writing in this genre
1: or if he was writing, like as you said earlier, like for a patron
0: yeah, and yeah. Know,
1: catering to his audience, presumably yeah. some of whom were attracted to women. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there is a specific story about when he was asked by Al-Amin, who will later become the caliph, who we'll meet, to write a poem about a woman that Al-Amin found attractive because Al-Amin himself wasn't good enough at poetry, but he got other <laughs> to write this poem. So that definitely did occur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did also read a few passing references in secondary sources to him having being married, which I think stems from there being references in his poems to him having children. But since I don't have his work in English in full, who's to say? <laughs> and also, like, we're back at that. Are his poems autobiographical or not situation? Yeah. Was he writing about someone else's children and they paid him to write a poem about having kids or, you know, Another point that's made is that he doesn't seem enthusiastic about his marriage yeah. whenever he does mention it. Again, I don't know exactly when that is. So whether this was a marriage that was arranged for him for some reason that he wasn't actually that keen on. Or he was just making that up for fun. Like, who's to writers say? do write fiction. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Also, you know, he could have had children without being married. Yeah,
0: that's also true. Yeah, should have mentioned that option too. (laughs) So, around 786, Abhanoas moved from Basra to Baghdad, the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. Literature and poetry are a very big part of Abbasid court life, and so now is a good point for us to discuss Abhanoas' work in more detail. He wrote across many, many genres, but we'll cover just a few key ones, starting with wine poetry, for which he was most famous. So, Abu Oas marked his move to Baghdad with a wine poem, writing, Faded is the mosque which brought together noble qualities and religion. Faded too are al-Sahan and al-Rahab, abodes where I spent my youth until grayness appeared in my side whiskers. Katrabul, which is a wine-growing district outside Baghdad, is now my spring residence. My mother is now the grapevine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, this poem is one of the examples I mentioned of how people kind of try to construct a life story for Abu where, for example, he was a very pious youth studying the Quran, as we've mentioned and so forth, and then he moved to Baghdad and took up a life of wine and partying. But, you know, whether that happened, who's to say? But this image of Baghdad as a decadent city corrupting pious youths, Mm -mm. aligns with some understandings of Baghdad at the time and ideas that urbanisation and the abandonment of a traditional rural desert lifestyle had left the people of Baghdad corrupted, decadent and degenerate. Maybe they were just having fun.
1: (laughs) I would say that aligns with every society in history. (laughs) Yes. And how they write about
0: themselves. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, like, we went to the cities and we became soft. Like, is there any society
1: anywhere in history where someone has been like, everyone moved out to the country and they got all weird and decadent? <laughs>
0: <laughs> is this not just that South Australian tourism ad with the Nick Cave song on in the background. Oh, Ooh. damn, you're so right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. <laughs> the only exception to the rule.
0: <laughs> I've just been with a very simplistic understanding of the culture of Baghdad. But there's a lot of tension and contradiction at play here. So Baghdad was an Islamic city. Specifically, it was founded, not founded, there was a village there before, but it was really took off as a city as the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate, which is an Islamic caliphate. <laughs> I don't think what to take is all <laughs> Caliphate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. And so alcohol is forbidden in Islam. Alcohol is ostensibly forbidden in this society, but also widely drunk. I know that now there are like varying interpretations of exactly how mm. forbidden alcohol is in Islam. Was the same thing true at that time? Yeah, look, I'm sure it was. I don't have specific debates about the viability of drinking alcohol in Islam at this time. I know there's discussion about the fact that the Quran specifically forbids wine, and then there's sort of talk about, well, if it's not wine, can you still drink it? But broadly speaking, Muslims were not meant to drink alcohol at this time. Okay. Obviously, they did, because people always do what they're not meant to do. (laughs) Wine poetry itself is a pre-Islamic tradition. And Abhin uses his poetry to consciously contrast pre or non-Islamic and Islamic attitudes to life, in particular, comparing a Muslim focus on salvation in the next life and, you know, following specific rules Mm -hmm. to achieve salvation in the next life with a pre-Islamic focus on drinking wine and enjoying your life as a way of spiting fate and your inevitable death. Obviously, this contradicts with what I've just said about the court of Baghdad being this very decadent alcohol-soaked court, but, you know... That's just how life is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. One of his wine poems on this theme ends with a quote from the poet Qais ibn Maymun al-Asha, who famously gave up on his conversion to Islam at the last minute when he found out that wine would be forbidden. <laughs> I like the implication that, like, all his teachers just, like, were, like well, like, we'll tell him later. We'll tell him later. Don't tell, He's don't tell him. He's not ready for that yet. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the story is, if they were actively keeping that from him. So that's our discussion of wine poetry. Let's move on now to a discussion of Abu Nasr's love poetry, and particularly his love poetry about men and boys, which is a genre called mutakara. Other people before Abba Nawas had written this type of poetry, but Abba Nawas is seen as one of the major innovators of the genre. And as I've mentioned before, despite the general pederastic model of the time, Abba Nawas does write poems about both boys and adult men. So prior to the Abbasid period, discussions of male homosexuality in Arabic literature are relatively rare and generally more negative. We see a shift in attitudes during the second half of the 8th century, something that's acknowledged by both modern writers and writers at the time. Some contemporary writers attribute this shift specifically to the Abbasid army's practice of leaving women at home when they went on campaign and without women to sleep with, turning to homosexuality. So the previous caliphate traditionally took women with them on the campaign, the Abbasids traditionally left women at home, oh, okay. and that made them gay. That just makes sense. <laughs> and this increase in openness about homosexuality unsurprisingly coincided with the rise of mudhakara as a genre. In some ways, mudhakara mirrored the conventions of muanatha, which is love poetry towards women, which was an older genre, and many Arabic love poems actually leave the gender of the subject ambiguous. We see sometimes the same poem of Abu Nuwas categorised as mudhakara by one compiler and muanatha by another. So there's definitely some ambiguity at play, but to be clear, he definitely does write poems about men. (laughs) Okay, so some poems are not ambiguous. Yeah, some poems are not ambiguous, but some poems are ambiguous. The first book I started reading, I can't remember which one it was, kind of took a while to clearly quote a poem that was about men and said this first, and I was kind of reading it being like, wait, so is this guy even gay? (laughs) (laughs) What's happening here? That is a weirdly common experience on Queer Respect. (laughs) I feel like it's just a common experience with, I'm thinking specifically about the experience I had with academic biographies where they assume when you pick up the book that you already kind of know the background. And if you've picked up this book and like, I knew nothing about the Abbasid Caliphate, I didn't even know there was an Abbasid Caliphate. (laughs) (laughs) And you have no background. You're just like, what's going on? Who are these people? (laughs) Yeah. I always find that when you read your like first book on a topic, you need to also read the Wikipedia page (laughs) just for like recognizing names. Yeah, I also had this problem with a lot of, like, technical words about Arabic poetry that they were just throwing in there. Yeah. And I was like, what does all this mean?
1: Yeah, I guess often, like, the thing, <laughs> if you're reading a book, they'll often be like, okay, so I am going to prove to you this thing, or, like, I'm making yeah. at this point, but they don't actually, like, therefore feel the need to justify all the other points that they're making that, like, yeah. have led to this. Or and even... It's like, okay, but hang on, if I know nothing and I'm trying to, like, make sure that my sources are good... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I need to learn the facts before I can learn the arguments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think especially with the English scholarship about Abhanas, and I can't speak to the Arabic scholarship, and there's also a fair bit of German scholarship, but the English scholarship is largely focused around his poetry and kind of Arabic poetry as a genre and really specific conventions of that poetry. Like, Oh, oh I- isn't it interesting how Al used the convention of closing his poems with a quote from another poet. That's interesting. If you're, into Arabic poetry, but if you're into queer history, you're just like, okay, that's nice, but what did he say in the poem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was kind of trying to pick the queer content out of these articles about, you know, about- rhyme schemes of Arabic poetry. Yeah, yeah,
1: like structural things. Yeah,
0: yeah. So coming back to the conventions of Arabic poetry, there are definitely differences, despite some of the ambiguity between the conventions of love poetry to women and love poetry to men. In particular, Mu'anatha, so poetry to women, traditionally depicts a chaste woman who rejects her lover, whereas Muthakara, not bound by those conventions or the expectations on women to be chaste, was much more likely to depict a reciprocal love and therefore by extension to be erotic. In terms of who the subjects of Avanuasa's poetry were, most of Avanuasa's Muthakara are written towards students, That may be students in monasteries, students in mosques, or bureaucratic apprentices in the court. But like, not like his students. He doesn't have students. He did at one point teach Hadith, but I don't know that he wrote any poems particularly towards those students. Just general students who were in Baghdad at that time. All right. Students in Christian monasteries were particularly notorious for sleeping with men, (laughs) so much so that monk was a common euphemism for pederast at this time. That's very funny to me. (laughs) I don't know exactly why, but kind of the impression I got was it's linked to the fact that Christianity is inherently connected with wine. You know, you have to have wine in a monastery. Yeah. And therefore, that was where people went to drink. And therefore, that was where they went to have sex. Okay. I think okay. that's what's happening there. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> As I understand it. Abhinar in writing about his attraction to Christian students, especially loves to rhyme the words cross, salibi, and beloved habibi. <laughs>
1: yes. oh, well, I'm glad that we got a bit of the like poetry in the original <laughs> Arabic. yeah
0: yeah yeah, talking about the subject of Abbanas poetry to be a bit more serious here, I also do want to acknowledge that while as I've said, it was understood at this time that teen boys could consent to sex, that doesn't mean they always did and Sexual abuse, specifically while a boy was drunk or asleep, is not an uncommon theme in Abu Nu'as' poetry, and in these genres of poetry generally. And slavery, as we mentioned with Janan, also existed at this time, and no doubt some of these boys would have been slaves. So when you say that sexual abuse was in Abu Nuas's poetry, mm-hmm. is it in his poetry as just like an element of the erotic poem, or is it something that his poetry is condemning, or...? No, it's just an element of the erotic poem. All right, all right. He's just like, this is my drunk somnophilia fantasy poem. Yeah. It's just 90s comedies. Oh, I didn't know that was what 90s comedies were. No, that's no good.
1: Yeah, like, hey, let's get up to some wacky hijinks. And that wacky hijinks is like... Sleeping with a drunk woman. Yeah. The more things change, the more (laughs) they stay the same. (laughs) I'm sorry to be replacing Eli for this episode (laughs) and come on and just be like, so really this is like 90s comedy (laughs) films? (laughs) <laughs> These are my only points of reference, dear listeners.
0: <laughs> so, as well as discussing the subjects of Abu poetry, I also wanted to talk a bit about the religious imagery in his poetry. So, as I mentioned, he was very well educated in the Quran, Islamic law, and Hadith, and he used a lot of Muslim imagery in his poetry, often in a tongue-in-cheek way. So he writes in one poem, for example, about two boys who are in love and how they have sex five times a day whenever they hear the call to prayer <laughs> rather than going to the mosque. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh. In another example, to come back to the Arabic, he puns on the similarity between the words kibla, which is the direction of Mecca that Muslims face to pray, and kubla, which means kiss, saying in one poem to a woman, God has made your face a kibla for me, so allow me to pray towards your face and have a kubla. Oh. <laughs> cute! <laughs> I like that you refer to all these like wordplays as cute because word I think they t- are inherently cute. I know, but I think at the time they were like wordplay was a big thing in culture at this time, yeah. and they were like, "Oh, this is such clever, witty wordplay," and you're just like, "Oh, cute."
1: Yeah, this is highbrow media at the time. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, it really makes you think of Shakespeare, right? Like, in an English language context. I don't know, at least to oh, me. Yeah. Like, that. Okay. Like Shakespeare is one of, you know, the primary exposures we get to historical poetry. Yeah, like a Shakespearean
0: um, sonnet has puns and is yeah. also highbrow love poetry.
1: But what I was going to say is that, you know, like, one of the things you learn as you learn a bit more about Shakespeare is that, like, whilst English teachers, you know, like to hold him up as highbrow, you know, this yeah. is the classics. Like, obviously, a lot of what he was writing was...
0: Was, like, popular
1: maybe at the media time. And yeah. Was yeah. Not considered particularly highbrow. To then come into this and it's like, yeah, I, I feel like that's the wavelength I'm on. So mm-hmm. then when you read out that, it feels very Shakespearean in terms of, oh, okay, so this is, like, lowbrow, popular yeah.
0: humor <laughs> romance. I don't know the exact context which this particular poem was written for. So, I to ask is in the court. He's patronized by various figures in the court, including one of the Caliphs. But at the same time, we do hear stories of him just reciting his poetry on the street and crowds gathering to hear his poetry on the street. So, I don't know if there were specific poems that were written for these different specific contexts, or if it was the same poetry that was being appreciated by the court and by some guy walking down the street. And I mean,
1: you know, (laughs) this is something that I always think about with these kinds of discussions. It's like, just because it was written for the court doesn't mean it's not considered kind of sweet or funny or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> Rich people
0: also do like sex jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. Oh. In other poems, Awanaas is more explicitly and self-consciously blasphemous. In one, for example, he demands that Iblis, which is the devil in an Islamic context, make a young man fall in love with him, with the threat that he will dedicate himself to the study of the Quran if he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> And he often depicts himself as leading this really kind of decadent lifestyle, but kind of thinking about or threatening to or joking about turning away from that lifestyle and becoming this really pious religious studious man (laughs) i was really thinking when you were like it gets more explicitly blasphemous i was like literally the first thing you introduced us to was these two boys fuck instead of praying five (laughs) times a day (laughs) i was like where are you going now the devil's here (laughs) that's so funny
1: that that like specific genre of gay man who's like Constantly threatening to turn over a new league because I feel like that's <laughs> such a trope of like mid 20th century yeah, like,
0: yeah. American
1: gay media. Like, I'm pretty sure there's something like that in the Boys in the Band for yeah, instance, yeah. And, like, stuff like that. And I'm just like, wow, <laughs> the parallel. Yeah.
0: So, all these themes of wine, sex, mocking religion, and generally an attitude that he should do what he wanted now and hope God would forgive him later on were unsurprisingly controversial and condemned by many of his contemporaries. <laughs> uh. <laughs> ultimately the caliph harun al rashid eventually had abu noas in prison for his poetry oh the specific poem in question was one which brings many of these controversial themes together i'm so keen it opens many a nagging shrew full of good advice seeks this impious rebel's repentance abu Nawas goes on to describe his attraction to a christian boy who served him wine who he describes as a lithe young man with a curl on each temple and a look in his eye that spells disaster Okay.
1: A look in his eye. That's That's so dramatic. I love it.
0: The poem ends with Abanois saying that if he wasn't afraid of Satan, quote, I would convert to his religion. That is the boy's religion, not Satan's religion. (laughs) I would convert to his religion, entering it knowingly and with love, for I know that the Lord would not have distinguished that youth so unless his was the true religion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, incredible. This guy
1: is so hot. That Christianity must be correct.
0: (laughs) 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 I also just love the fact that Christianity is the gay religion in this setting. Yeah, actually, I hadn't really thought specifically about the connotations of Christianity in this setting, but you're absolutely right. Christianity is like the... The gay sex religion. The gay sex drinking, really like... I was going to say Bacchic. That's maybe not the word, but you know, (laughs) the Bacchic religion. (laughs) I understand that it's specifically the blasphemy which led to Avanos being in prison for this poem, but overall it was a very controversial... I mean, truly, what was in there that wasn't blasphemy? <laughs> well, I think specifically the fact that he talks about Christianity being the true religion was kind of the last straw for the caliph. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know much about his time in prison. He got out again. He continued on with this life. According to one anecdote, he turned to the Quran for defense while in prison, citing its reference to poets who, quote, say what they do not do to suggest that his poetry didn't actually reflect what he was doing in his day-to-day life. It's quite funny. Which is, you know, interesting when we consider that that's our problem with the sources, but also that that's what he was saying to get himself out of prison. (laughs) So, who's to say if that was true?
1: (laughs) So... To go back to the earlier question of, like, obviously we don't know in what order he wrote various poems. Yeah. But so we do have some idea then based on, like, do we have poems that are clearly from after he's been in prison?
0: Yeah, yeah. So we do have poems that are from, you know, specific times in his life or reference, for example, specific people he knew in his life or that kind of thing. But it's not like every poem we can put a date on. Yeah. And especially with things like wine poems that are less concrete and more just say, I went to the tavern and we were drinking wine and a beautiful boy served us wine and we had a great night. Like that can happen at any point in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas <laughs> I was in prison and I wanted to leave is a very small window, hopefully, in your life. <laughs> you will go to prison again. I <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's so therefore it will not be easy to determine it
0: and full disclosure i don't know if this quote about saying what he does not do comes from this time in prison or a different time in prison i don't even know how many times he went to prison do you know more of the poems that got him thrown in prison <laughs> i think that's the only one that i specifically read as like this is the poem that he went to prison for he may have and this isn't as concrete and I don't know exactly what the primary sources are, he may have also written a poem specifically satirizing northern Arab tribes and praising southern Arab tribes, himself possibly being presented from a southern Arab tribe, but the Abbasids oh. being northern Arabs, and so that was obviously unpopular, and that may have also got him sent to prison another time. And I think there's another one where he questions whether heaven is real that also may have got him sent to prison. It's not really clear if, like, this is one time in prison where he did a bunch of things and eventually the caliph was like, that's it, or whether this is multiple instances. Okay.
1: So at least three potential reasons he could have gone to prison.
0: Yes. At least (laughs) two prison stays? (laughs) At least two prison stays, at least three potential reasons for going to prison. And we will talk about another of his specific prison stays later. So I want to take a quick off-topic deviation now into another genre of poetry for which Albin is famous. Hunting Poetry. This doesn't have any significance to his podcast, I just wanted to talk about his dog. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, dogs are always significant to this podcast. Yeah, yes.
0: Yeah. So, his hunting poetry focuses a lot on the various animals that assist in the hunt. That includes dogs, falcons, also cheetahs, which they trained to help them hunt, and oh, to ride incredible. on their horses in front of them till they were ready to jump Wait, off and hunt. The cheetah sat on his horse with him. The cheetah sat on the horse, yes, correct. You just, like, sit in your saddle petting your cheetah, or...? Yes, that's yeah. correct. That's
1: incredible. That's so amazing.
0: (laughs) I can't believe that I have never seen this in a movie. I guess because nobody makes movies about 800s Middle East. Or maybe they should. Well, I I guess also like to the extent- that like you know
1: sort of historical genre movies exist they tend to be live action in which case getting a cheetah into a saddle is probably quite difficult apparently <laughs> cheetahs
0: are quite easy to train and the biggest trouble is that they're incredibly lazy so it's not getting them to not maul you or anything it's literally just getting them to do stuff <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah
1: well cheetahs have to like rest constantly because like, they go so fast they go so fast <laughs> yeah but they can only do that for like 30 seconds
0: and then they have to sleep to prepare for next time they <laughs> go fast so in conclusion if there's a cheater in your movie, you can do like one take per day with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess that's why there aren't cheaters in movies. So, Avanas wrote in particular as I said, a lot of poems about the dogs he hunted with, including an elegy for his dog Halab who was killed by a snake. Oh no. In which he writes, poor dog, he was a lord among hounds. Halab. That was the whole reason I told you about hunting poetry, that's it. That's the genre. I know. That, that cheater digression was also cool. <laughs> oh Yeah. <laughs>
1: I would have been very upset with you if you had, like, later told me about the cheetah thing and just, like, why did you not tell me this immediately? This is going to
0: be our number one takeaway from this episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Arabic (laughs) literature. So, as I mentioned before, to be successful in the Abbasid Caliphate, a poet needed a patron. Like, we need patrons. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for supporting this podcast.
1: Smooth (laughs) as butter.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Abuas had several patrons throughout his time in Baghdad, but in particular he sought the patronage of the Barmakids, a prominent family within the caliph's court. The Barmakids patronised many poets, but Abu doesn't seem to have had much success with them, something which Kennedy ascribes to the jealousy of Aban bin Abd al Lahiki, who was already their client poet, and had a strong connection to the family. There are several stories about the rivalry between the two poets. Notably, Abba Nawas wrote a poem about Al-Fadl ibn Yahya, one of the Barmakids, to celebrate his return from his post as governor of the province of Hurasan. Aban, the Barmakid's poet, paid Abba Nawas for the poem, but Abba wasn't impressed with the amount he got, and so he slapped Aban in the face and called his mother a prostitute. <laughs> no wonder he didn't get a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty inflammatory guy. <laughs> <laughs> And Abanoas would go on to write several satirical poems about Aban. In one, he writes that Aban's mother must have gotten mixed up when naming him and meant to name him Atan, which means donkey. Get wrecked. Get wrecked, Aban. (laughs) I sort of, when you started this, expected them to be like rivals, but they're not at all. Like, this guy is just like a guy with a steady job, and (laughs) Abanoas is just like, I want your job. You suck. You're a donkey. You're a donkey. You smell. Give me a job. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand why you've interpreted that situation in this way. But satirical poetry was much more powerful in the Abbasid caliphate okay. than it is now. <laughs> okay, okay. So whereas to us writing satirical poetry about someone just sounds like a kind of petty thing, <laughs> it was quite influential at the time. <laughs> poetry, as I've mentioned, was a huge part of Abbasid society, and it was one of the key ways in which people were talked about in the public sphere and in which they were remembered after their deaths. So Oban was quite concerned about these poems So I need to imagine it more like he's leaving him bad reviews on Uber Eats (laughs) <laughs> a barn court poet of the Abbasid carpet Peter i guess that, I, I,
1: I guess really like to use a more serious comparison <laughs> this is more like writing an op-ed yeah in the new york times
0: he's yeah. been cancelled <laughs> he has not By been cancelled <laughs> 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 a barn apparently at one point offered to pay abba noas a significant amount of money to stop writing this satirical poetry well i guess that works yeah it's another strategy So in the year eight oh three, Khalif Harun al-Rashid quite suddenly turned against the Barmakids and had many of them imprisoned or killed. Oh well he didn't work for those guys. So there are various reasons given for this sudden change of heart. most often that Harun discovered that his sister was having an affair with his advisor Jafar ibn Yahya al-Bamki. It's Jafar. Oh my Is God it actually the same Jafar yeah, it's the Jafar it's the guy in Aladdin.
1: Oh cool <laughs> <laughs> Hi <laughs> oh, so Jafar in Aladdin trying to get with Jasmine.
0: Yeah, that's the plot. That's what's happening right now. Crack
1: the code, Ting.
0: (laughs) And she has a tiger. It's basically a cheetah. It's all coming together. (laughs) So, confusingly, with no sense of self-preservation, despite his ongoing feud with Aban, Abanoaz at this point showed support for the kids and wrote an elegy to the family. I
1: am beginning to feel like this man... Is just contrary for the sake of being contrary.
0: I think you're right. That definitely seems to be a theme throughout his life, that he will write whatever is going to be the most inflammatory in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what gets you remembered. Yeah, I mean, that might just be because that's what gets you famous as a poet. Yeah. Following the fall of the Barmakids and the writing of this poem, Abanoa spent some time living in Cairo, possibly because he was exiled due to supporting the Barmakids. Okay. but could also be for other reasons. It's possible that he followed a wealthy patron there. We don't really know. What's happening in Cairo at this stage of history? So Cairo was also under the rule of the Abbasid Caliphate. Okay, cool. So the stories of Abbasid journey to Cairo show that by this time in his life, he was a well-known poet beyond Baghdad itself. When he passed through Damascus, for example, people gathered in the street to hear him recite his poetry. Cool. Abbasid was also very personally aware of his skill as a poet. <laughs> when he arrived in Cairo, he entered the court of the Governor al hassib ibn Abd al Hamid, and there he dismissed the rest of the poets in the court, claiming that his poems would be like Moses' star to their poems and that he was the only poet the court needed. <laughs> <laughs> <He's> so bold <laughs> oh, well, wow. there was a bit of discussion in scholarship like more close to his life scholarship and modern scholarship that is basically around how did he get away with this? Why was he allowed to continue being in society behaving in this way? (laughs) I mean, he went to prison at least twice. He did not get away with this. That's true. Like, (laughs) I think that from a thousand years in the future standpoint going to prison seems like a much smaller deal than it would have in his life. Like, when you you hear about a historical figure spending, like, two years in prison, you're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, that wasn't a significant part of their life, then they just went back to what they were always doing, but... But, like, imagine if you have a real friend who spends two years in prison. Yeah. Mm. Like, that affects your life. Yeah. I mean, you
1: know, like, I feel like, at least from a modern scholarship perspective, how did he get away with it is a statement. I guess it depends on when exactly your scholarship was published Mm. because I feel like in a post-2016 world, how did he get away with it is not a statement (laughs) that we really, like, you know, think that much about anymore. That's true. Men just (laughs) say
0: words all day. (laughs) Men say whatever they want and there are no consequences. Abdallah ibn al-Mu'taz, who lives around the century after Abhinas, so definitely pre-2016, Attributes the fact that Avanoros continued to get away with this kind of behaviour with essentially his winning personality. (laughs) Saying that he had an immense saving grace. He was witty and charmed with his elegance, grace, amenity and the diversity of his playful spirit. He was the most generous of men and unstintingly giving. I feel like this is also (laughs) one of those things that's kind of hard to see from a great historical distance. Mm. Where yeah. you can completely understand somebody you know in your life who is kind of an asshole, but is, is also, also p- likable and fun. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But and it's it- much harder to comprehend this guy has charisma from a, a thousand years
1: removed. I guess also, like, that's a very specific genre of, like, creative man. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. That, sure. that thing of being, like, super generous because it's like, well, like... I can always just write more poetry. Yeah. You know, like, I'm a genius. I can just write more poetry and make myself more money.
0: Yeah, yeah. And definitely also some other modern scholars have talked about this kind of more specifically in the context of the Abbasid Caliphate, which is a time which really focused on poetry and the arts and where a man like this could be really successful. Mm. And also a time where the ruling classes were very confident in themselves and very open to this kind of humorous, satirical work. Mm. And they didn't feel threatened by it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, obviously sometimes they did because he went to prison, but, you know, they didn't <laughs> feel threatened by it to the point where it ruined his career. Yeah. But also, obviously, what threatened them there was not criticism of the ruling family or anything. It was his whole Satan deal. <laughs> yeah, it was it was blasphemy. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And yeah. I guess that makes sense if, you know, like, religion is the underpinning of
0: Mm, yeah.
1: How your rule is legitimized. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that, you know, yeah, criticizing the monarch not a big deal, criticizing the religion, the backs the monarch. Yeah, maybe big deal. a Big <laughs> yeah. deal.
0: Yeah. So, anas came back from Egypt, he returned to Baghdad after a couple of years. In 809, Harun al-Rashid died and his son Al-Amin became caliph. Despite his less than great relationship with Harun, Avanar seems to have been close with Al-Amin and wrote several poems to him. Which are generally less formal than normal poems written by clients to their patrons, suggesting that they had a genuine friendship rather than just a client-patron relationship.
1: Presumably they knew each other before he ascended to the caliphate. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, that kind of makes sense. that They didn't have like a direct client-patron mm. relationship in the same way before that, and then they subsequently did.
0: Yeah. Kennedy also suggests that they may have been romantically involved. He quotes a poem by Abba which he says is assumed to about Alameen, though once again, because I don't have all the scholarship, I don't know why he says that. <laughs> <laughs> but in the poem, Abba says, I am in love, but cannot say with whom. When I think about my love for him, I feel for my head and wonder if it is still attached to my body. Wow.
1: <laughs> I love that. Just like, where is my head? <laughs> where your head at?
0: Yeah. <laughs> al for his part, was apparently attracted to men. He was also specifically attracted to eunuchs. So much so, this is a bit of a non-Abanos-related tangent, but I wanted to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so much so that his mother, Zubayda, instituted a new practice amongst the servant girls who worked as entertainers at the court, where she would have them dress and perform as men with the idea that this would entice Al-Amin to find women attractive. Oh, I see. (laughs) These performers were known as gulamiyat, which translates as boy-like. So they would wear male clothes with masculine hairdos. Some of them would use perfumed paint to paint moustaches on their faces or the long side curls, which I've mentioned. Some would also use the same paint to paint verses of poetry onto their cheeks, which I just thought was cool. Definitely some of those dancers were like, ooh, this is nice. (laughs) This (laughs) has awakened something in me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so these... Glamy arts gender presentation is generally just discussed in relation to its attractiveness to men, it being something that was designed to be attractive to men, rather than being something that reflected any personal identity. Everett Rosen, for example, argues that it was largely something enforced on enslaved people by their masters, beginning with Zubaydah, and wouldn't necessarily reflect personal identity. But on the flip side, we do see, for example, one of these galami who Abba Noas writes a poem to, and we'll talk about a bit more, named Magnun, who apparently not only dresses and performs in this way, but also undertakes a variety of traditionally masculine activities, playing polo, archery, playing the lute, which was generally done by men, and so on, suggesting that this role is one taken on in more aspects of life than just performance in the moment at court there's
1: probably a lot more research to do here i'm just imagining this person's like wait what, what are you doing why are you doing all this like traditionally masculine stuff it's like oh no it's it's
0: method acting yeah
1: like <laughs> <laughs> the person about to invent method acting <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> haven't you heard
0: <laughs> avanoas writes about maknun she found that the attire of a boy best perfected her beauty and was more appropriate for profligacy and sin <laughs> More appropriate for sin. Yes. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> I am dressed for sin. Yeah. <laughs> so there's obviously a lot more here to say about gender and... Sin. Sin. <laughs> but that's not what this episode is about, unfortunately. So <laughs> moving on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I also wanted to talk about Gulamiya because it helps us to talk a bit more about Abanwasa's own sexuality. And specifically, the way he represents his sexuality in this poem that he wrote about Maknun. So in this poem, he writes about when he slept with Makhnun, and he says, When we were finally united, I felt myself in a tempestuous sea, drowning amidst its clashing waves. But then, in the poem, he's rescued by a boy. He says, Help me, boy, I cried, and he came to me. Ibn Mansur, in his biography of Abhanawas, interprets this boy as Makhnun, having Abhanawas add a note after the poem that, quote, I became so involved in the act that I imagined her as a boy. This sea imagery where Avanuas describes women as a dangerous sea and boys or men as kind of a safe, stable land in terms of relationships is pretty common in his poems. It's quite interesting to see it combined in the one poem about the one person, but it's definitely an ongoing theme for him. Interesting, yeah. I'm just sort of thinking about the way that often what you see in, like, I guess, poetry or other, like, fictional or like prose depictions of love Mm. as well is that people will sort of describe like romantic love as the wild and dangerous kind of love Mm. and platonic love as this like stable steady love yeah or like going out and having more casual sex as the tempestuous sea and for example a stable marriage as the steady land whereas abunos even writes one of these poems unfortunately i don't have the poem itself because i never saw it but apparently he writes one of these poems on the occasion of his marriage, about the woman that he marries. Where the marriage is the stormy sea. Yeah. I don't know. What type of love feels like a stormy sea to you guys? (laughs) 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 I need more data. (laughs) So, coming back to Abbasid politics. Al-Amin had a half-brother, Al-Mamun, who was slightly older, but who had been named second in line to the Caliphate after Al-Amin. Okay. I won't go into all the political details, there's a lot going on, but a civil war broke out between the two brothers over succession, which ultimately led to al-Mamun besieging Baghdad itself. Throughout the civil war and its lead-up, al-Mamun attacked al-Amin for his hedonism. The craziest story I read about him, which I just assume al-Mamun made up, (laughs) (laughs) um, is that he put earrings on the fish in his private pond. (laughs) They don't have ears, yeah, though. I don't even... I was trying to, like, understand what that meant, so I was like, how? Where? I mean- <laughs> on the fins?" <laughs> Al-Amin was also reportedly sitting in a perfumed pavilion drinking wine while Al-Mamun's army is besieged Baghdad. So that's the general image of Al-Amin that's painted okay. by his <laughs> enemies. I assume,
1: based on the fact that we have this image being portrayed, that this does not end well for him.
0: No, it does not end well for him. <laughs> 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 how did you guess? <laughs> but first, attacking Al-Amin's hedonism for al-Mamun, also meant attacking his association with al Nawaz and specifically the fact that the two men regularly drank together. Following al denunciation by al-Mamun, al-Amin tried to distance himself from al by having him imprisoned again. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. this doesn't seem to have stopped him writing the kind of poetry he was always writing in one poem penned in prison he writes alamin i languish in the sodomites prison and fear being buggered do you wish them to bugger your very own poet
1: (laughs) that's very funny (laughs) i get that obviously the word bugger Is not in the original (laughs) (laughs) Arabic. Like, in an Australian context, I consider that to be, like, a very mild swear. Yeah. Like, sort of on par with, like, bastard.
0: I feel like that's on the level of saying sugar and fudge, to be honest. (laughs) 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 Definitely Uh, not, like, a real swear word. And definitely not something you expect to see in poetry, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't fit my picture of a 9th century court poet (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: writing to the caliph. Yeah. Bugger, I'm in jail. (laughs) Oh, bother. (laughs) Yeah. So, as you predicted, Jason, this whole situation didn't end well for (laughs) Al-Amin. And he was ultimately killed in the siege of Baghdad, and Al-Mamun succeeded him as caliph. al seems to have survived the regime change and gotten out of prison. Alright, so their plan worked, at least. (laughs) I think this was their plan <laughs> i think the plan was to defend al-amin's reputation by distancing himself okay. from abu Nuwas, not save abu Nuwas. <laughs> but it turned out that it defended abu Nuwas's reputation by distancing him yeah, yeah apparently and you know i don't know the exact sources of this etc etc al-mamun actually did quite admire abu Nuwas as a poet and like his poetry but it suited him at that time to paint this picture of al-amin and abu leading leading this really hedonistic debauched lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so now we come to the end of Apollonius's life. He passed away in around 814 or 815. Various stories are told about the cause of his death. One is that he was poisoned by his patrons, the Nabokht family, after writing a satire about them, or possibly after being framed for writing a satire about them by a jilted lover. <laughs> Wouldn't you just fire him? <laughs> Another possibility is that he didn't come out of prison, that he died in prison. And a third story, probably the most apocryphal, is that he was up all night drinking in a tavern right until the moment of his death. Which I, don't I don't think know. That sounds just as plausible, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> it could have happened, but it seems more to fit with, you know, the, the image image than a real person. Yeah.
1: To answer your question, Irene, as to why someone would poison him, I mean like we've seen throughout his life that like when he gets punished, he doesn't back down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you fire Abanoas, he's going to write a satirical poem about you that ruins you. Yeah, that's That's true. not gonna stop him. That's yeah. true.
1: And yeah. like someone else will hire him because everyone loves his poetry.
0: Okay. <laughs> so poisoning him is the only option. <laughs> <laughs> So Kennedy knows that there are many stories specifically about Abanas being visited on his deathbed by friends, which suggests that he wasn't poisoned or in a tavern, but was ill. So he posits that it's most likely that he passed away from illness in the home of the Nobach family, and that that led to later rumors that they poisoned him.
1: I guess <coughs> they could have poisoned him and then, like, the poison didn't, like, immediately kill him. Like, not all poisons, like, kill you in five minutes. Or yeah. Whatever.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we honestly just don't know. Yeah. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, that obviously (laughs) is the most logical thing, is that we just don't really know. We
0: just don't know. Anything could have happened. So that brings us to the end of Abenoas' life. I would generally try and wrap up an episode by perhaps talking about the legacy that an individual has, but I think we've already addressed a lot of the conflicted legacy of Abenoas' among 19th and 20th century Arab scholars, which is most of his modern legacy at the moment, I'd say, and talked about the way that they tried to distance themselves from or deny his sexuality. Unfortunately, as I alluded to when talking about having to pick through literature-based sources for hints of queerness, there's not that much scholarship in English that focuses on him being queer. I hope there's more scholarship about that in Arabic, if people do read Arabic. But I also hope that this episode goes some way towards redressing that lack of conversation about his queerness that exists at the moment. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Jason. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our content on... Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, or I believe you can now do this on Spotify too, we really appreciate it if you leave us a rating out of five stars, because that really helps us to reach a bigger audience. If you want more Queer as Fact content in between episodes, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. If you want to support us financially, you can become a patron. Just like an absolute poet, we need patrons to continue. <laughs> But we won't destroy you with satirical poetry if you stop being a patron. I guess we could offer that as a tier. Yeah. We write a satirical poem about you. I'll do it. I'll do it. (laughs) Okay. Or if you don't want to become a patron, you can also (laughs) buy our merch on Redbubble with no fear of retaliation. (laughs) You can find links to all of those things on our website, which is QueerAsFact.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.